This is episode 39 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm speaking with author J.D. Harrison. Like most authors, J.D. Harrison wrote a lot of stories as a kid. She even had some promise as an advanced English student, flourishing in creative writing classes. But horses are her one true love. So J.D.'s studies and career focused on them for most of her adult life. J.D. traveled all across the United States, working with and learning about horses as individuals and as a collective. There's little she hasn't dabbled in, though most of her work focused on caring for the horses rather than competing herself. In 2015, J.D. decided to bite the bullet and give NaNoWriMo a shot. Her intent was to elaborate on a snippet she had written decades ago, using her experience with the jousting community to really flush things out. J.D.'s main character, Josephine Bowen, quickly took the reins, which resulted in 120,000 words written in one month and one heck of a writing hangover. Josephine and the jousting company she is a part of have kept J.D. busy ever since, at least when she's not at the barn, because horses will always come first. Now, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horse book authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi everyone, welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight. I'm Carly Cade and today I'm so excited to speak with J.D. Harrison. Hi J.D., welcome to the show. Good morning Carly, how are you? I am great. I'm so excited to talk to a a fellow horse lover and author of books and it's always fun and I always love starting these conversations off with learning a little bit more about how your love affair with horses began. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I'm sure like most horse lovers, I was kind of born that way, where you just innately are drawn to them. Um, But I had it fed at a very early age. My grandmother and uncle had a show Arabian stallion and um, some broodmares. So my actual very first concrete memory is he would put me on the back of the broodmares when he would lead them in from the pasture. So that's my first memory was holding onto a handful of mane and just withers in front of me. And so that's the, you know, that was kind of the beginning. Oh my goodness. That is like, it's, it's awesome to a be born with it, but then also have access, access to Mm -hmm. it at a young age. But you also have your own herd of furry friends these days. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your furry family? Well, I have one horse at this time. Um, I recently lost my pony, so I'm down to just one now um, of so my fine. own. However, I have a herd of like 40 that I take care of. So I ca- I'm kept pretty busy with them. And they're Morgan horses, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so are you like the farm manager? Like how did 40 Morgan horses come into your life? <laughs> <laughs> Um, It kind of was one of those kismet things where you're just in the right place at the right time. Another friend of mine was training for her and I went out to hang out with my friend. And while I was there, I was grooming one of her horses and she was like, you know, I have a lot of horses and they could use some attention. Would you like to come out and give them some attention? And I was like, sure. 
And um, I think I'm probably the longest running employee there. So I've been there for eight years now. Mm -hmm. And I'm mainly there to make sure everybody stays mannerly. She has some breeding stallions. So we have to make sure that they're well handled and Mm -hmm. gentlemen. So (laughs) that's kind of my job. Oh, that's awesome. So you're like the resident, uh, making sure they continue minding their manners and remember, you know, what they're supposed to do and you groom them and you organize the farrier and, and sort of like a manager. of exactly. the Exactly. All the feeding. And um, luckily, I don't have to do much of the labor anymore. We recently got a farm man mm-hmm. who's ended up being kind of my understudy. Mm-hmm. So that's been really great because it's getting harder and harder to find people who want to work that hard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, blood, sweat, and tears at like, you know, people like we do, but it's getting harder to find young people that want to do that. Yeah. Times certainly have changed, haven't they? Um, mm-hmm. But that sounds pretty much like a dream job to me, managing amazing. <laughs> and so much inspiration as a writer of horse books, I imagine. Speaking of horses, I wanted to talk to you about, about your books because I, you know, had a lot of fun galloping around your website and, and composing the questions for our interview. So you have over a decade of experience squiring at championship tourney and a long love affair with all things medieval and renaissance. So you mm-hmm. are bringing to life the unorthodox culture of jousters and their horses. This is so yes. fascinating. Tell us how you got into jousting and what is a squire of a turning do? And, you know, how has all this inspired your books? Like, this is cool. So it, I've always been fascinated and had gone to Renaissance fairs everywhere I went, even when I was chasing the horses around the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never really um, introduced myself to the jousters because they were busy. They were working and I didn't want to monopolize time. You know, I had enough other horses in my life. I didn't feel like I needed to, you know, insert myself. But I was very lucky. My husband, um, at the time, my boyfriend, was like, you really need to go to this Highland Games that's here. I had recently moved to Colorado and was learning the lay of the land and where to find everything. Mm -hmm. He said, we've got to go. So we went up there and there were jousters. And I was really excited because... Um, even though they do spend a lot of time doing crowd interaction, there's also downtime in between the competition portion. Mm -hmm. So we could go back behind the scenes to the barn and meet them, which is my, you know, I'm much more comfortable in the barn anyway. So I was like, yay. So I went down there because there was a horse and rider that I very much admired. Um, out of everyone there, they had the their teamwork was amazing and it was quite clear how much they fed each other. Um, And you always like to see that in a horse and rider, how they're kind of symbiotic. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, I must go introduce myself and pet this horse. Um, Cause you know, as much as I love the Knights, it's really the horses are the first draw for me. And I went back there and introduced myself and said, Hey, I'm a professional horse person. Um, You know, I'd like to, meet your stallion if that's okay. And he was like, yeah, sure. Here you go. Um, 10 minutes later I was brushing and then I was like, so if you need help next year, let me know. And the next year I showed up and was there for all three days. And, um, he was very impressed because usually he has to tell people what to do. And I was like, look, just get out of my way. Mm -hmm. I'm good. My (laughs) husband will help you with the armor. I'm here to take care of your horses. So go shoo, go be pretty. Um, 
so yes, that's kind of how I just, I made myself a spot and walked right in and they opened the door and said, here you go. Oh, so that's so magical. Yeah. So you, so you, so you were interested in jousting and then you went to this event and you went to the mm-hmm. part where you're comfortable and you ended up, you know, being a behind the scenes sort of groom helping the jousters prepare. Mm-hmm. Right. So, mm-hmm. so, it, and then obviously it grew from there because now, so is the squiring, the squiring is the caretaking of the jousters horse and getting them ready. Is that right? So I do also help on the field during the competition. Um, sometimes, you know, maybe uh, when the guys get knocked off, somebody's got to go get the horse, bring them back over to the mounting block, get them back on. I'm usually that person. Um, if somebody gets tired or has to get off, take a breather, go, you know, walk around or get a drink, I hold horses. But I also help them armor up mm-hmm. um, because when they're on the field at a tournament in particular, it's a very long time to be out there on the field Mm -hmm. so you have to have extra hands because these guys aren't super mobile once they put their armor on I'm sure is it Um, as heavy as it looks so it it's not as heavy as it looks but it is heavy um you're looking at anywhere from on the low end the guys who go minimalist you're looking at about 75 pounds um but upward from there these guys are looking at 125 because some of these guys are big strapping dudes mm-hmm. so the more armor you have to put on those big dudes the mm-hmm. bigger the suit gets mm-hmm. wow and okay so so you do all all of the things that they you know kind of need you to do you're kind of like mm-hmm. you're like they're like like a groom at a show sort of is sort of what exactly it's like. well and that's why there was the correlation because my career in horses started as a groom for upper level event riders. Mm. So I'm used to being the one who anticipates needs and mm. gets the right equipment on the right animal and make sure that everybody's functioning and where they need to be on time. So cool. It sounds like a perfect, perfect fit. And then, oh yeah. So do you have to wear any like special medieval outfit while you're doing yes. this? Oh, you Absolutely. do? Absolutely. Yes, that. yes. Um, well, in my case, I kind of adapted some things because I do, I don't mind wearing the girly stuff, but you really don't want all the skirts and the poofiness getting in the way. Um, and frankly, you know, as much as the bodices are nice, nobody really wants a boob burn from (laughs) exposing things that don't normally see the light of day. So, you know, I tend to not dress quite as extravagantly Mm -hmm. as some of the people who are working uh, in other parts of the Ren Fair, mm-hmm. you know, you're you're going to be a horse napkin. You don't really want to have all the expensive lace and linen and velvet um, turning into a horse napkin. Right on. So it's a, more like maybe like a peasant shirt and jeans or something, you know? Well, I usually wear breeches. breeches. I usually wear breeches and I'll wear my uh, paddock boots and half chaps because those are comfortable for me. Um, my husband went so far as to actually get some half chaps made that looked like Renaissance boots, but I don't have that kind of money laying around. I spend it all on my horse. So, <laughs> well, yes, we're, we're all horse poor, like in this world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like everything I have is on clearance and then they get whatever they want. So. That's for sure. We do spoil our horse babies. That's <laughs> so great. Yes, we do. So all of this experience, like this leads us right into your book. So tell us how this experience, you know, with the jousting world inspired your work uh, with the Gallant Hearts series. Like I want to hear all about your books. Well, the books were 
supposed to be a challenge for National Novel Writing Month. Mm, um, they were not supposed to turn into what they did, uh, which is currently at five books. I'm working on book six and it's a planned out till nine. So, and I know there are going to be more characters that interject themselves and want to be written about. Um, but it turned into, it was supposed to be a writing exercise because I wasn't sure if I could do 50,000 words in a month. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was pretty sure I could, but not 100% sure. Mm -hmm. um, I picked a piece that I had written well before I got into the jousting. Uh, is a piece I'd written in a notebook, just kind of a little piece of a story about a, a young woman uh, who went to work with a jousting troop and met a rescue horse mm. and how the immediate draw that she felt to help this horse. And I was like, I can elaborate on this, particularly now that I have all this experience in the jousting world. So I said, okay, here we go. We're going to jump into this. I blew the goal out of the water. In one month, I wrote 120,000 words. I was a human jello by the time I got done. But when the girl with the lance in the armor tells you that you're going to keep going, you keep going mm -hmm. um, because otherwise she will bludgeon you in your sleep, mm -hmm. which is kind of what happened. Um, and from there, it, it originally, again, was supposed to be one book, but there were so many things that came up in the first book that I was like, I have to answer these questions. I have to continue this progression. Mm -hmm. um, it was not supposed to be romance at first, but the characters had their own mind about that and ran with it. So it became so much more than I anticipated and I regret none of it. It's been amazing. It's a huge journey. Um, and I had written some other novels before, but these ones have absolutely taken on their own life. Oh, that's amazing. And <clears throat> I love, well, first of all, what did you say? Over 100,000 words in a month? That is like mind -boggling. I did 120,000 words. That's incredible. So yes. you were yeah. at your computer every day writing double what NaNoWriMo yes. suggests that you write, which is yes. incredible. Um, I tried <laughs> NaNoWriMo once, which is every year in November. It's a, it's a competition where people get together and they write the first drafts of their books in a month. 50,000 words is the goal. And, uh, you know, I've only, I only ever got to 30,000. So 120,000 is incredible. So way to go. I mean, obviously, you were meant to be a writer. But I also loved how you said, the characters kind of told you what to do. Like, absolutely. I that, yeah, I have that same experience. Like I have, I'm, they're just talking through me. I'm just like the medium. Yes. And, and, you know, mm -hmm. they dictate where it goes. And I love that you just said that you have that experience too. <laughs> Dictation is 100% the way it goes. You know, I try sometimes when I'm laying in bed, I try to go, okay, where's the story going next? And, you know, even though I can have those thoughts, when I sit down at the keyboard and I start typing, mm -hmm. whatever they want to say is what comes out. It may be entirely different from where I thought it was going. I have like an end goal for them to get to. I have a couple of little hit points along the way, but the rest of it's all them. Yeah, that, I love that. I love hearing that that's your experience. I have that experience too. So do you have a copy of the first book in the Gallant Heart series there with you. Can you hold it up for those watching, dun, dun. watching us on YouTube? Beautiful. This is actually a photo. I don't know if you can see it very clearly, but mm -hmm. this is a photo of one of my friends who is a jouster and a lady knight, which is what this book is about to start with. 
Um, so we actually got to put a picture of her on the cover. We are rebranding them because I got a good cover artist. Mm -hmm. um, and when I got the cover artist, you know, well, you know, don't judge a book by its cover, but people started picking up book three and going, oh, what's this? And I'm like, no, no, you really want to read book one first. So we're working on a rebrand. Um, but it is very nice to be able to put your friend on the cover. Well, it's beautiful. I mean, it obviously points toward re uh, Renaissance and the, the jousting discipline. And so talk, talk a little bit about why you decided to, to rebrand. So I, what I'm hearing is you're rebranding book one and two and keeping book three, four, five the way they are? Yes. I picked up a cover artist for book three. Mm -hmm. um, I kickstart my novels. So it started out with me going, I'm just going to see if this thing has legs and people want to read it. Mm -hmm. So I spent a minimal amount, mostly on editor, to try and get book one done. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there, I was like, oh, look, it is growing legs and it is a thing and people want to read it. So I'm going to continue. Book two also was a, I had a little bit of help with somebody helping with Photoshop, but not... It wasn't a professionally done cover. Mm -hmm. I put on book three and then all of a sudden everybody was, what is this? Oh, it looks amazing. And mm -hmm. so book three, four, and five have a consistent look and they look like they belong on the shelf together. Mm -hmm. Book one and two now look like the odd man out. So, oh, and, and you know, that's great. It's interesting that you mentioned that because you, you can rebrand and recover your books at any time. And, and, and often, mm -hmm. you know, even if there's nothing wrong with the cover, uh, authors will refresh them just to give the book a new look for perhaps mm -hmm. a new audience or, you know, a new, you know, timeframe in within the year. And I know that you have the, the whole series over there behind your shoulder. I am so curious. Would you like me to grab it? I, I am curious. I am curious right now to see the difference between the two since, since we're talking about yep. that. Yeah. Let me grab them. It's a lot of words. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. So what do you, what are your books average? They, they look like they're more than 50, 50,000, like 80,000 or more. Oh no. So we ended up at 118,000 for book one mm -hmm. after edits. And then at this point with book five, I think we were at in the range of 200. Oh, wow. These so are, these are this long is, books. Yeah. This is book one. And that's book five. <laughs> oh, wow. So, so as we were saying about the rebrand, I only have the test covers because we're tr still trying to figure out coloring and, mm -hmm. you know, how they're going to print. Okay. So I see, I do see the difference, like the color's a little bit more vibrant and you went with uh, like a symbol or something. So this is actually the shield that represents the company. Mm -hmm. And then as we go on, this one's not finished being rebranded. It is going to be fixed up at some point. This is book two. So this is another Knight's Arms. Book three will have another Knight's Arms, but we haven't finished doing the center image yet. And then this one is where the hero and heroine are absolutely together. So we put both of their shields on it. Um, and then we moved on to a different night for book five. I so see. it just kind of, it's, it's a much easier way to identify which book you're looking at. Mm -hmm. um, if you're familiar with, you know, the contents of the book, you go, oh, that's so-and-so uh, without having to look at it. And then when they're on the shelf together, they all look like they go together mm -hmm. instead of like two disparate series. Yeah. And that's, that's so smart of you to do, you know, and it's like, and that's sort of like how it goes with first in series. Like you have to kind of get your momentum to figure out how you 
want them to look. I'm actually going through Absolutely. a re I love this conversation. I'm actually going through a rebrand with, with my books too, to do exactly what you're talking about. They, they look similar, but mm -hmm. the font is different on my first book, yeah. the third book. So I'm like, you know, syncing up the fonts and, you know, making sure everything on the spine looks the same and kind of redoing the back matter. And it's so cool that we have the freedom to do that. And I'm assuming you're an independently published author, yes. which is why you have the power to do this, right? Absolutely. Cool. You know, and, and thank you for showing us all those covers, because I, I think that is particularly for authors that are just starting out or aspiring authors, this is a great dialogue oh, yeah. to have to, to kind of see how this, this can go to know you can do it, but then also mm -hmm. to understand the continuity of having your series kind of all, all in the same vein. And I like that you went with the, um, the shields and the symbols on mm -hmm. the shields in, in order to determine which book is which. And I see them over your shoulder there too on your, on your wall, which is, which is very cool. Yes. That one, the company shield, we decided to put up here in the living room with the other stuff. I have the other shields because I actually hand paint them oh, wow. um, before to, when we photograph them to put them on the cover. So I have to go through all that work to do them. So at the very least I'm going to display them because they look cool. That's really neat. And then do you design the symbol yourself and it, you mm -hmm. do all of that? That's incredible. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. So, and I'm assuming that each one has its own meaning attached to the character. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so the thing with the main shield here that has the double-headed eagle on it, the company is run, the jousting company is run by two brothers. Mm -hmm. So it was meant to symbolize, you know, it's all one company, but it's the two brothers that wow. are running it. That's so cool. I love that. Yeah. So obviously your knowledge of the how the jousting companies work and the behind the scenes sort of stuff like really helped inspire you to to, oh, create, for sure. to create your world. That's really cool. And I also really like this too. Um, in your bio, it says that keeping chivalry and romance alive will never grow old. Will you talk to us a little bit about your thoughts on, on chivalry and romance? So there's more to it than just holding open a door for a lady or any of those things. It's really a whole way of life, um, you know, building other people up, being there for other people. Uh, one of the themes throughout this is that this jousting troop is not just a group of people who work together, but it becomes a family. Mm. As much time as they have to spend together training and being on the road, it really bonds them all. So it becomes kind of a, how can we help other people? How can we add some of this energy to other people? So it's really not about just what, you know, you have, but what do you give others? Mm -hmm. um, that is, has been an overwhelming theme with any of the really good jousters I've worked with is that they really enjoy giving that energy that they carry into their own lives to other people. You see them do, doing charity work. You see them going to visit hospitals. You see them, and we cover all of that in the books as well. Um, so none of this is actually based on anybody I know. It's more in the spirit of the thing. I, I did memorialize a few horses in here. None of them have the same names, but uh, the stallion in particular that I talked about that I first met and drew me into the jousting world, um, he gets heavily used in here for one of the horse characters so oh I love that well and you know speaking of fiction that that's what we do we we don't write necessarily about people or you know things but we write about like where our experience of life kind of influences mm -hmm. like how the fictional characters develop mm -hmm. which is great yep. and I, 
I love that philosophy about the chivalry and, you know, never growing old and, and that it's infused inside of everything. That's a great way to live life, you know, obviously. It is. Yeah. And you're sharing that message through your work, which is even better. You know, it's like putting the message one out of there. the One of the things that kept me going on this series was I had so many people from book one who felt recharged to chase their own dream. Um, because this is a big dream she's chasing. She's giving up a lot to do it. Um, she's definitely deviating from the normal path and she's taking a big risk mm -hmm. not only with her physical safety, but you know, with where, where her career could be going instead she's chasing this. So it's inspiring in a way that like tells people, Hey, you shouldn't recognize your own dreams. And feed that part of yourself as well mm -hmm. so the fact that it's lit other people up has been one of the overwhelming things that keeps me going oh that is so special and so great it's like you you the readers feed you and you feed the readers back and forth with this message and getting that kind of feedback I just that is so wonderful and, and let me ask what time frame are your books set in is it is it in the past is it present day justing like They're modern day Modern day. Modern day. Very yes. cool. So there are two different, well, there are several, and there's actually quite a few different schools of jousting. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, when you go to the Renaissance Fair, most people see theatrical jousting. Mm -hmm. So not to discount those guys' athleticism because it takes a lot of training to fall off without hurting yourself, um, you know, and to a lot of courage to do that as well because most people aren't voluntarily going to fall off. Right. Um, our whole goal is to stay on. Mm -hmm. But these guys that I'm writing about are actually full contact jousters. So the only way anybody falls off is if you get hit that hard. So this is really a woman going into a sport where she's competing against men who are heavier and <laughs> bigger than her. Um, she's a tall woman, but she's not particularly broad. And so she has these guys that she's jousting against. And so it really becomes a matter of will mm -hmm. and, you know, effort rather than just her physical ability. Mm -hmm. Like she really has to, what I'm hearing is practice the skill, you know, yes. to make up for her body mass. <laughs> yes, exactly. She has to want it really badly. The one thing that did help her was that she was already a horse person. Mm. So I actually got to bring in some of my other love, which my original love was three-day eventing. Mm. So she was originally an eventer. So certainly she's not uh, unfamiliar with taking risks and doing things that are an adrenaline rush, uh, the possibility of getting hurt, but she still does it because she loves it. Oh, that is so great. And I love this. It's like a message of the power and strength of, of women in partnership with their horse, you know, so that absolutely is, that is so cool. Uh, you know, so I wanted to ask you this too. I mean, you are a writer. I mean, you know, a hundred and twenty thousand words in a month. Your your books are are longer. Like I think most most average I write romance. My books are on like eighty thousand words. So so you, yes. you write big 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 longer books. So. Do you have a special way you write or a special time to write? Like, how, how do you set yourself up for success in, in getting the words on the page? So my system is not so much a system. It's just writing whenever I can. Mm. Uh, I write on my phone sometimes. It's just 
if I am sitting there waiting for my husband for 10 minutes and I can, I'm at a spot where I can kind of, you know, keep things moving, then I will. I'll just sit on my phone and thank goodness for uh, the internet and being able to have things on cloud because then you can just pass things along and forward them to the next, you know, to add them to the document. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank goodness for that. Otherwise, I would be at a loss. <laughs> but I, I write on my phone, I write on a tablet, I write on my laptop, I write at home on my desktop. Thank God for a very understanding husband who is twice a widower between the horses and the writing. He's like, so when will I see you, dear? And I'm like, well, you know, I love you, but you're going to have to feed yourself tonight. So it's actually, I think I overdid for a little while. And right now I'm struggling to get book six written, uh, which I did not expect because it's a very dynamic book. Mm-hmm. So I thought there would be a lot of energy and it would keep me going and I'd be very excited about it. And I am, but it's been very hard to get myself into the zone and stay there. Hmm. So I can usually get a scene done and then I find myself for several days being distracted and that kind of thing. I need to get back into a rhythm. Mm. Um, but typically when I was at high production, I would work at the barn, uh, pick up my husband. If he was working late, I would just sit at a coffee shop and write while I was waiting for him. Mm -hmm. If that didn't, if he got off on time, then I would come home and I would take a nap. Mm -hmm. And then I would, because you know, you've worked physically then your body's like, look, I may be a little too tired to put together thoughts. Mm -hmm. So then I would take that nap and then I would get up, have dinner, and then I would write. And I would write until a little bit later because I already got in a little bit of a nap. Mm. So I knew I was still going to get in all of my writing time or all of my sleep. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not a very good person if I don't get all my sleep. Oh, I don't think any of us are. So, so, so I think, you know, when I read the responses to your questions, you said that you would get up at 11 and sometimes right through the evening because you're most productive yes. at night. So, so you write yes. at night. Yes. And how many hours would you say when you were at your, your most productive, were you spending a day writing? Do you think? I would say when I was writing the 120,000 words in a month, I was writing <laughs> It was a full-time job Mm -hmm. uh, and then some. I write relatively quickly once I'm in the zone, but sometimes it's hard, you know, if you're tired or something like that to get the flow going again. Once it's going and you've opened the valve on the dam, the words just, uh, and I'm just struggling to keep up. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I know that feeling. And it has to be when you have energy and you're not tired. And I think so the nap Mm -hmm. evening structure works really well. Yes. And then, you know, I wanted to circle back to something that you said that you were having a a hard time being energized around, around book six. And I don't think you're alone. I think a lot, a lot of authors do experience that, that feeling. Can you share a little bit about, you know, why you think that's happening? And then maybe some of your strategies to, to work around that, which is mostly just sitting down and doing the work, right? That's always the hardest yes. part is just sitting down. But what, why do you think you're, you're having this experience with book six? So a lot of things hit me. Normally I go into NaNoWriMo and that's my time. During the summer, I'm busy doing horse things mm-hmm. as we all are. We're taking advantage of the weather you know, the whole nine yards. 
So I am less productive during the summer. I'm still writing, but not as much. Mm -hmm. But I try to take advantage of the days of poor weather to really focus on getting that done. Because mm -hmm. I'm not going to go out and spend all day freezing my tukas off. So what ended up happening here is November ended up being kind of an emotional... I had a lot of things going on in my life that were emotionally draining me. And then I lost my dog, my old dog. Uh, then I lost my pony just recently. So every time I start to get a little momentum, something emotional is coming along and draining me. Mm -hmm. I wish I could channel all that and push it into the books because that's usually a good catharsis for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I am still writing. I'm just not writing on the novel like I would like to be. Mm -hmm. um, and that makes, that makes so much sense. I mean, life happens. And that's the hardest thing I think sometimes about being a creative is that, you know, it takes a lot of emotional energy to get words on the page and write something that makes sense and that touches people. So like when you're feeling drained or tired or dealing with something as difficult as losing a pet, and an, I mean, that is so that is so hard. I, I get it, you know, and it's, and, and I think what I'm, where I'm going with this is that it's, it's normal to get a little stopped and stuck and, you know, kind of have to like force, force yourself to go, you know, but I think yes. that's normal. And I, I, that's the reason why I had to bring it up because write, writing is not, is not an easy thing. It's very emotional and it takes a lot of energy to generate. So what you're saying is, is normal and life happens and you got to, you know, allow yourself some slack and, and it's okay. Absolutely. And book six will come when it's ready, you know, and I think, mm -hmm. I think they, it does show up when it's ready and then, you know, you're just taking some time to work things through. Is, did I get that right? Yeah, I, I completely agree. And thankfully I have very understanding readers. <laughs> well, and I'm sure that, I mean, I'm sure your readers are rabid. Like, you know, let's, Let's talk about your readers. Like, how do you, how do you reach your readers? Like, how do you get the word out about this? And I assume, I'm like completely assuming that these books are just as fascinating for someone who doesn't have a deep background in, in jousting to, to check out. So like, how do you get the word out about your books? I do most of my stuff on social media. I'm, I'm very much about the personal connection. So at this point, my numbers are low enough that I can very much focus on feeding my readers and keeping them connected and in the loop, even if I'm not giving them the story, mm -hmm. I'm still feeding them, oh, this thing came up today and inspired me. And so they're still excited and still invested. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes they'll make a comment, which will feed into something in the story. Oh, cool. So they enjoy being part of that process. I find I produce about a book a year as kind of the average. That's great. Um, yeah, considering how big they are. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the fact that I'm juggling two very big passions, it's it's definitely a juggling act because um, certainly the horses aren't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. That's not going to stop. Mm -hmm. But I spend a lot of time talking to them on social media. Uh, I have a fan group and every week, almost every week, I try to do a reading mm -hmm. uh, so that way they can actually hear how I would read the story. Because we all read stories differently. Mm -hmm. You know, there may be inflection where I wouldn't put it or that kind of thing, which is genuinely why I don't put people on the covers of my books. Is I get very upset when I read a book and what I see on the cover looks nothing like who I'm seeing when I read the story. Your vision, I completely agree with that. That's why the covers of my books are are silhouetted. So so I don't exactly. interfere with the 
uh, person that the, my readers are envisioning because yeah, I'm the same way. Like if there's a person on the cover of a book that I'm going to read, I, I go into the book with that there, but that's not the person I envisioned. So it's like everybody's yes. imagination works differently. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to hear that you share that too. So, and all your books are the symbols and then people's yes. imagination can develop the characters. That's really cool. Exactly. All of our life experiences feed into that. And we mm -hmm. all have such different life experiences and what one person will find attractive, somebody else won't. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I'm going to let you fill in the blanks. Yeah. It's like the movie reel of your own mind based on your exactly. own you know, preferences and life experiences. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. And then your, your fan group, is that based on, is that a Facebook group where, where fans yes. can find you? Yes. Very mm -hmm. cool. And it sounds like you're very interactive with your readers. And, and I think that's such a great thing. And, you know, there, there's a book out there somewhere called, I don't remember exactly what it is, but basically the premise of the book is that all you need to be successful in like a business, uh, writing books or anything is to have 1000 rabid fans is really all mm -hmm. you need to, to create momentum for your books, you know? So it's mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. like actually having a small fan base is a good, is a good, is a good thing. Not a small fan base, but you know, like a very engaged, like 1000 engaged fans is what you exactly. need for success. Yeah. I'm building numbers slowly. And I think that a lot of people in equestrian fiction have that same problem because we don't really have a unified place to promote. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's not like, you can just jump out there on the, say, a romance group because it's a very niche market. Mm -hmm. And when I add in the jousting, it's even more of a niche. <laughs> so, you know, I run into the common, oh, it must be a historical fiction. And I'm like, no, it's not. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's all these things that, you know, you have to get through all of that to get to the reader. Mm -hmm. What I tend to focus on is retention. Mm -hmm. So if I can potato chip somebody in with book one. Mm -hmm. um, now that I'm this far along in the series, about four times a year, I do a, it's free on Kindle. Would you like to give it a shot? Risk-free. Mm -hmm. And then I'm looking for people to read that one and go, I must have more. Oh, that's very smart. That's a great strategy, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's the beautiful thing about having a series too like if someone like yes. book one they're generally gonna continue on with the series and and keep supporting your work so that's very smart and you're also a member of I've talked to a couple other members of the group you're also a member of authors with altitude group which yes. I love you guys partner up to reach readers too and you all have horses in your books but you write across genres so can you tell yes. us a little bit about that group and what you guys do to support each other so Laura Hargis and I have been best friends for, since I moved to Colorado. Um, it was one of those sister from another mother kind of thing. Um, and we've been besties for a long time. We've seen each other through all the ups and downs. And I met Julie going to some conventions locally where I was going to uh, feed my, I'm thinking about becoming an author. Mm. and. So I was trying to get some education and some support and that kind of thing. So I started going to conventions where they had panels from authors and writers and people who were self-publishing. And I wanted to inure myself, you know, get into that community and be part of it. Mm -hmm. And I had met Julie because she has a marvelous series of books that have horses in them. And so, of course, I went, horses? What? <laughs> and... So I introduced myself and we talked for a couple of years. 
But when I went to springboard to actually being a novelist, she was the one that was like, dude, if I can do it, you can do it. She talked me off the ledge whenever I had panic attacks that, oh my God, what am I doing? It's all going to fail. We all do that. (laughs) We all do. And Mm -hmm. so having somebody to do that was an integral part of my journey. I wouldn't be where I am if I hadn't had friends that were like, yeah, you can do the thing. I did the thing. You can do the thing. Mm-hmm. So you, so, found your tri- you found your tribe. You did exactly. the right thing. You immersed yourself. Yep. Exactly. And so Julie and I got together that way. And then um, Laura started writing her books. And Julie was like, oh, we should totally all get together. And then Laura is, tends to be kind of the organizer of the group. Mm-hmm. She says, hey, I found this thing. We should go and sell books here. Mm-hmm. And because we all have books that are a little bit thematic, they're not exactly the same. And Julie has a much more diversified portfolio than we do. She's written in several other genres aside from just books with horses in them. Mm-hmm. So uh, we get together and we sell at large events that there's no way we would be able to have a booth by ourselves. Not just because we can't afford it, but because you know you need somebody to relieve you. You need somebody to pick up the ball when your energy starts to flag, you know, mm-hmm. um, they're, they're marathons, not sprints, mm-hmm. uh, you know, getting through an entire weekend of interacting with people. Mm-hmm. So we have basically put together a group. Um, we keep selectively adding people here and there. Um, but it, we're again, selective because it's not so much that we need you to pay to get in or anything like that. But we want to maintain the same kind of energy. Mm. And that's the encouragement and the, you know, yeah, let's do it. Go, go. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, it's a team effort and we don't want that to, you know, be watered down. Absolutely. And I I love that. I mean, like my, I love it when I hear stories of authors uniting and getting together and charging each other up and supporting each other. But what it's so smart what you're doing. I mean, you, you are going to these events where, you know, often for authors, it's, it's hard to pay for a big booth that's like thousands of dollars when you only really profit like a couple of dollars every book you sell. So doing it together and splitting that cost and then also being fans of each other's books and, and passing, you know, readers around to the, to what they like, you know, it's just, just, it's great. It's like working together and it's supporting each other and it's splitting costs to make things more cost effective. And it's, you know, like, Given your chance, yourself a chance to take a break during these long weekends because most authors are introverted, so it takes a lot of energy yes. to talk to talk to to people um, at a whole long weekend event. So that's a great strategy, and I love the name. How did you come up with the, you know, authors with altitude? That's so smart. We started as gifted with words because mm. we were going to the Colorado Country Christmas gift show. Uh, quite the mouthful, but. Since we were already going to a gift show, we were trying to say this is what what kind of gifts we have in this booth is we're gifted with words. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're gifting words to people, you know, but our gift is words. So we thought that was a marvelous play on words and it worked for a little bit, but people weren't 100% sure what we were doing. It was mm. a little too, not quite clear enough. So when we said authors, you know, then everyone was like, oh, this is who you are. This is what you do. And then the altitude is because we're all from Colorado. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, we're all a mile or better. So I like that. And it's, it's sort of like a, 
play on attitude too, which is kind of cool. Yes. You're, you're all women with positive energy supporting each other. And, you know, you got that, you know, snazzy girl, girl power thing going on, which is, which is pretty cool. So it's, it's really smart. I, I've really enjoyed learning about your group and the things that you guys are doing. You know, I wanted to, to ask you too, like, you, you know, you said that before you really got in there and decided I'm going to be an author, you immersed yourself in the culture and the community and you educated yourself and you, and you learned and you met these great women that also supported you in your endeavors. What advice would you give to, you know, an author that's just starting out? I would say it's going to depend on the area you are in. Colorado is genuinely one of the the first places I've been that has been hugely supportive of creatives. Mm. Um, I don't know what it is about here. When I lived in Arizona, when I lived in Virginia, it was much harder to find the enclaves of people who were into that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But we have a series of, they're, they're basically sci-fi fantasy conventions, but they have very strong creative tracks of education at their events. Mm-hmm. So when you go to these things, you know, you don't have to go and cosplay or dress up. You can go to support whatever your creative endeavor is. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these are on, uh, you know, writing itself, getting an editor how to find, you know, your tribe, uh, what are the common pitfalls of self-publishing, how can you do it easily, what are, you know, what are the things that you've experienced that have made you want to cry, so that way, when, when the other authors are sitting there going, why am I freaking out about this, you could go, dude, you are not alone, because I freaked out too, mm-hmm. um, you know, having that, that, group of people that's like, hey, we've been there and we know that you too can do this thing um, has been, I, I, I have no words for how fortunate I feel to have found that group. Because even though I'm not writing in their particular genre, they're still hugely supportive of me. I'm now a panelist at, at a lot of these conventions. Oh, so cool. I'm turning that around and becoming an educator in turn. Um, because again, I like to pass the energy on. If I'm going to receive, I feel the need to give back. So mm-hmm. it's been really awesome. And I am one of the rare authors who's actually an extrovert. So I will talk to anybody. Yay! And <laughs> I know. And so they're like, oh, you'll you'll do panels and not hide behind the table? Here. <laughs> uh, you know, so for me, those conventions, like I just had one this last weekend. And those conventions feed my creative spirit mm-hmm. instead of drain me mm-hmm. um, because I come away going, look at all these passionate people. It's amazing. Oh, and yeah. That just charges my battery. Awesome. So you would, so you would recommend like a, a beginning author to like get involved where, you know, wherever they are, find, find the community of writers, yes. find a tribe, join a group like if you're a romance writer join a local chapter of the romance writers of america like get you know get out there and find your people or or go to events and conferences Mm -hmm. for me finding out about those things actually happened because of NaNoWriMo Mm. Um, because NaNoWriMo is very much about community Mm -hmm. and if you get on the message boards or you go to the write-ins that's where I started to develop my my tribe aside from my couple of girlfriends um and then they were like, hey, if you would like to know more about this, 
then there's this thing that's like, you know, next month, you should totally go to that. Getting that community from there was honestly the, the foot in the door that I needed mm-hmm. to point me in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, during nano, you're all encouraging each other and egging each other on. Mm-hmm. So that spirit carries through to the rest of the year. That is great advice. Yeah, it's like uh, during NaNoWriMo in November, um, they they have local they have local meetups where you can go and meet mm-hmm. up other authors that are participating and um, write with them and get involved that way. And and then it just it's like anything it kind of snowballs. Once you find your people, you find other avenues and uh, ways to educate yourself. That's great advice. Thank you. And for those of you who don't want to go meet new people. Um, you can actually, they have such a huge online platform now, you can chat online. Mm-hmm. So that's a great way to, you know, feel things out without having to jump in, you know, and cowabunga into the whole thing like I did. Yeah, that's that's great. So you can dip your toe in or you can just rocket mm-hmm. launch in there like JD did. <laughs> exactly. That's awesome. Uh, and I, I always like asking these questions to a fellow author. So for you, what has been the hardest part about being an author? And then on the flip side of that, what's been the very best part for you? The very best part has been getting to uh, immortalize a lot of the animals that have been in my life, uh, mannerisms that you don't want to see pass away, you know, Mm. when they, because unfortunately that's part of being with animals is they don't stay forever. Mm -hmm. Um, So being able to uh, memorialize them has been an amazing part and has fed fed me pretty heavily. Um, but really, I enjoy the writing, you know, getting to know these people that live in my head. <laughs> um, so that's been, I love that part. I love getting to be in, in this own world that I've made for myself. The hardest part, uh, to this day, I, I still curse whenever I have to format my books. <laughs> Because mm. uh, technology and I, we just, we just, you know, I love it, but I want to chuck it sometimes. <laughs> so that that is the one part that makes me a not very nice person. Uh, my husband just avoids me that entire day. He's like, no, she's good. I'll throw her <laughs> chocolate from a distance. Yeah, keep her fed. <laughs> exactly. Just just don't disturb her. You know, because God bless word. If you move something, something else moves. And, mm-hmm. mm. but yes, that's been the hardest part. So I've recently discovered a program called Vellum. Have you heard of Vellum where I can take my Word manuscript and take it over to Vellum and it actually formats the, the book for ebook and paperback for a one-time price for the software. And it's not that expensive and it does everything for you and it's very easy to use. Formatting used to make me want to rip my hair out too, or or then you have to pay a designer and it's very expensive mm-hmm. to do that. But Vellum has been like a go-to great resource. It's I think it's like three hundred dollars, but you have it forever. And it can cost mm-hmm. more than that to format yourself or to mm. format yourself or pay someone to format for you. So it, and it's a very easy program to use. It, it does all the front matter, back matter, middle chapter. You can choose different fonts. It's, it does the page numbering for you, which I know you don't like. So anyway, that's a, it's a good resource if you want to check out something that might make your life simpler. <laughs> it probably would. I have a hard time because my chapter headings are images. Mm. So it, it makes it slightly more complicated. Mm-hmm. So it's harder to feed into other programs mm-hmm. because I still have to sit there and 
place the chapter headings correctly. So I will certainly look into it though, because I haven't worked with it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was working with Word because it it was what I already had. Oof, Word is Word is pretty monstrous for for formatting. Yes. I like to write it. I like to use it for my manuscript, but but not for formatting. But uh, I believe mm-hmm. Gollum has uh, where you can insert images. So that oh, might, good, good, good. might be exactly what you need. So mm-hmm. you check that out at your own time. Um, yeah, but it's like, it's the nitty gritty stuff of being an author that you don't realize until you get in of the thing, you know, it's mm-hmm. like you have to get a cover designer, like you were talking about the rebranding, you know, and then the formatting and all those little things, which are great pieces of the puzzle, but it's just, you got to take it a little baby step by baby step by baby step. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So here's the other thing I was curious. What might a reader be surprised to learn about you? It can be anything. I would say something my readers might be surprised to learn is when I am in the middle of a book, my characters tend to affect my dietary choices. So I find uh, my main heroine, her one vice as far as food is Oreo cookies. <laughs> So I went through the first four books eating quite a few Um, because, again, you don't tell the girl in the armor, no, she will beat you up. But the other thing that I ended up doing, and I already drank a lot of tea, but I wanted to find something that I felt like she would really enjoy. Mm -hmm. So I have um, a tea that I actually goes out as part of my Kickstarter um, and comes with nifty mugs. Oh, cool. Um, the, she has a particular Welsh brand of tea that she really likes because that's her heritage and that's what her family serves. So I got completely and totally into that tea. And then now that I'm working on book six, the heroine really likes to drink chai. So I find myself drinking a lot of chai. Um, you know, so it, it very much will be my character's demand to be fed. Uh, in book five, I was eating, uh, she's Canadian. So I've, I found myself invariably looking for poutine. Like if there was poutine on the menu, I was having it. Uh, (laughs) my husband was laughing hysterically. He's like, look, there's poutine. I'm like, all right. Yeah, I'm having that. Yeah. Her one vice was like French fries and potatoes. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, okay. This is why my butt is getting bigger while I write. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so it, it's very funny how they, they demand to be expressed and they demand to experience certain things. If I'm walking through someplace, I'll smell something, which I don't actually find appealing. But one of my characters will go, I really like that. What is it? You know, so I've gotten like colognes, you know, what does the guy smell like? Well, that guy right there. And um, to my husband's vast embarrassment, I will walk up and ask a guy what he's wearing. Because I'm like, I need to know, you know. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, it's research. It is research. And, you know, and we all do it in different ways. And I I love that your characters demand to be fed. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. so cool. And I wanted to ask you too, you touched on Kickstarter a couple of times and I, I didn't, I didn't ask you about that. Talk a little bit about, about what you're doing with Kickstarter. I'm, I'm curious. So when I first started out again, because the horses take all my money, mm-hmm. I couldn't afford to get an editor. And when that was the one thing that my friend Julie was like, look, if you're going to spend money on anything, mm-hmm. get 
an editor. And I was like, okay. Good advice. Um, yes. I write very clean copy. Um, so it's not so much that I needed somebody to crawl through and pick out all the places that I messed up words, but I needed somebody to help me tighten up uh, the storyline and make things cleaner mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. And she said, hey, check this gal out. And that gal and I connected. Uh, finding an editor you can work with is by far one of the hardest but best things you can do for your books. And I said, well, how much will it cost me? And of course, at 120,000 words, that was no joke. Mm-hmm. So after I had a heart attack, <laughs> I said, okay, how can we make this happen? And so my friend who um, I refer to, I might, I refer to my beta readers very specifically. My alpha beta is actually my friend who's on the cover. And she basically got book one. And as a female jouster was like, oh my God, are you sure you've never actually jousted before? Because now I'm, I'm supercharged up and I want to go, you know, get back in the armor and do the thing again. But my alpha beta was like, hey, why don't we, would you be willing to try something like Kickstarter? And I was like, I don't know. I never thought about it. So I got on and did all my research and was like, I'll give it a shot. And if it doesn't happen, well, it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And it did. <laughs> uh, I basically raised enough to fulfill my rewards and get my editor. And that was all. I had no spare money. But as I've gotten to like book five, I'm now raising progressively more. And again, I'm keeping retention. So people who have pledged before come back and want the next one. So yeah, that's, that's basically how that started. I'm getting slightly better at the process, but it is genuinely one of the most stressful parts for me hmm. because you spend 30 days watching that bar not move very much. And you're like, it's not going to fund and I'm not going to be able to make this book. Mm-hmm. Um, because those that marvelous storytelling brain that we have also likes to tell us a lot of lies. So it tells you, you know, nobody's going to want this. This is terrible. You know, who's going to give you money for this? No, no, no. Mm-hmm. But then it funds and you're like, all right, I can now take the ulcer medication and recover. <laughs> But it's worth it, you know, and it's part of my relationship building with my readers as well, mm-hmm. because during the Kickstarter, I give them snippets from the story. Um, I bring in rewards that have to do with the storyline. So before I was sending Welsh tea, this book six, I'll send chai because that will give you a more immersive experience when you read. So that's great. So so everyone that contributes to your Kickstarter campaign gets little goodies from you. Uh, is, is that how that works? or Depending on which reward you pledge at. I've never run a Kickstarter so, before, so I'm so, I'm like so curious how it, how it works. Yeah, what, absolutely. What a smart way to fund what you're up to and get your readers involved in the, the process. Mm-hmm. The rewards basically start with, you know, you can just make a pledge and not want to get anything, mm-hmm. which I have a couple of family members who like to chip in a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. that's how the first one mostly got funded was <laughs> the few people that were really interested in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a few family members who were like, here, I'll throw you 10 or 20 bucks. But now it's mostly readers. Mm-hmm. My reward levels 
vary from you're just going to get the ebook and they always get it in advance of when it's released on Amazon. Same thing with the paperbacks, as I make sure that they get paperbacks before they can order them on Amazon. So, and you can get them just signed. You can get them signed with a personalized inscription. So those are just, you know, add a little bit more money. You can get the mugs. You can get t-shirts. I have t-shirts designed because the jousting troupe in the books sells t-shirts at the Renaissance fairs. So what I do is I design a t-shirt like they would sell at the Renaissance fair. And then you can get one and say, yes, I am a fan of Gallant Company Thanks. And they always get comments every time I wear them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, there are things that may have personal value to the hero or heroine. Uh, this particular one, we actually are going to have two different t-shirts because the heroine in this one belongs to a different sort of troupe. So it's kind of, we have to make sure we get representation for both of them. But it's really fun to see what people respond to and what they attach to and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of spread knowledge of more things. You know, I try to support other small businesses when I'm doing rewards. Mm-hmm. So that way, cause I know what it's like to be a small business and every order counts for something for sure. So being able to introduce people to other small businesses in the process is extra fun. Oh, that is so smart. You're the first author I've, I've talked to that have, has done it with a Kickstarter campaign and that's, mm-hmm. that's brilliant. So it sounds like this is something you pair with the launch of, or prior to the launch of every book you've written, mm-hmm. it's sort of kind of become like your, your system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much how it goes. I love it. Thank you for sharing all that with us. And it, and it's an investment in something really important, which is an editor who helps take your writing and polish it and make it even better and give you feedback that you need. So the, the, the fans are investing in a final product Yes, that's going to be really worth the investment, you know, so that's, exactly. It's, it's awesome. It's like full circle. Mm-hmm. So I know you're working on book six of your series, your Justin series right now, but what are, you, what are you curious about? Where are you heading? What's, what's next for you in, in your author career, perhaps after, after book six? What, what are you thinking about? So I'm currently in a collaboration with a creator from one of the conventions who makes these marvelous stuffed animals. Aww. You can actually see them back there on the shelf behind me. I do. Um, a little fox. Yes. So there's a winged fox and there's a winged bunny. Mm-hmm. And she also does Kickstarters to produce these little animals. Mm-hmm. Um, but we turned into this thing where I had bought the bunny to give to my little sister. Mm-hmm. And my mother said, if you're going to send it to her, can you write a story to go with it? And I said, sure. So I wrote the story, whipped one out, and it turned out much more involved and better than I expected. So I sent it to the gal who created them. And she was like, oh my God, this is exactly what I've been looking for. Um, I've wanted to do little books to go with them for the longest time. Would you be willing to work with me on that? So I'm now going to be part of a group of illustrated books. So those are pretty awesome. I find that my characters tend to dabble with whatever I'm curious about. So currently the heroine that I'm working with does belly dancing. So I find myself, like I have some tapes that I go and if I need to get in the groove, I go and I, you know, do a couple of DVDs and go, all right, now I feel like I can really write this. And then the next one after that is actually sort of feeds one of my other fun things is I do like to go to the conventions, um, even though I'm not 
quite as big a geek as I probably need to be to hang in that that uh, area. I love the people there. Mm-hmm. So my next group, actually, my heroine really likes going to those conventions and is a video game player. So my husband's satisfied with that because that means I might actually spend some time with them. <laughs> You're a very busy lady and I love it. I so love how you, you speak about your characters and how they infuse like experience into your life and then how your curiosity Mm -hmm. is kind of infused with them. And, and I love the, the story of connecting with, you know, the right person loving her work and the, in the plush animals and then finding a way to accompany her work together and collaborate. It's just so cool. You're, you are so cool. I've so enjoyed this, this conversation. So, J.D., will you share with us where people can find you and your books? Well, you can find me on Facebook. I am under J.D. Harrison. I have a fan page there. You can also go to the Gallant Hearts Gather Here group, and that is a marvelous place to get all the little insights into what's going on in my brain and to interact with other readers who are also looking for the next hit. Mostly it's populated by a couple of my beta readers who are very ravenously waiting for me to write the next chapter because I have a one beta reader who gets them every time I finish a, a chapter. So she's like, hurry up. I need more. But it's a lot of fun. There are things that are very specific to, you know, jousting that maybe you've never seen before. So I try to share pictures there. So you've got some visual reference, mm-hmm. you know, and there's different levels of horsemanship that go into it. Mm-hmm. So one writer may make it an entirely different choice than another. So it's fun to be able to share all the things that visually go into the book. And then you can also find me at www.gallanthearts.com. That's my website. And I try to keep it updated, but because I'm running it myself, it usually is one of the last things to get done. <laughs> yeah, but what I'm hearing is you're super active in your in your Facebook group and like people yes. get to see you, hear you, speak to you, know what you're thinking and, you know, see yes. visuals of what's inspiring you. And, and that's, and that's awesome. That's like more real time anyway, than, than a website. Yes. So that That's, mm-hmm. that's really cool. And JD, I have so enjoyed having you on the show. Is there anything else you want to share with, with listeners today? I'm going to give you the inscription that I put in everybody's book when they pick up book one, Aww. never, ever give up on the strength found in a dream. I love that from the bottom of my heart. I love that. And that is such solid advice, not just for the authors listening in here or the people who love horse books, for everyone, right? We have this one big, beautiful life. What are we going to do with it? I think we need to hear that one more time, JD. (laughs) Can you say it again? (laughs) Yes. Never, ever give up on the strength found in a dream. Oh, that is so beautiful. And I think that's the perfect place to end this fantastic interview, JD. Thank you so much for the gift of your time and supporting other authors and the beautiful work you're doing and the way you interact with your fans. I wish you tons and tons of success, continued success. (laughs) I wish you tons of success too, Carly, because, you know, we all are in this ocean together and, you know, getting more sailboats down the way, we can get other people coming along in our wake. So you know, I agree. Just pull other people along. I totally agree. And I and I love how you mentioned earlier that there isn't exactly a hub for everyone writing horse books despite or equestrian fiction, despite you know, whatever discipline or genre it is. But I, I truly agree with you that one day 
we will have a space where where there's an equestrian fiction shelf, be it digital or in a bookstore or what have you. But you know, there will be a space for us because there's a lot more out of of us out here than you know. And I think it's not as niche as people think either. There are so many horse lovers in the world, you know, and I, and I and they're mm-hmm. they're ravenous for the kind of content that we're creating that gets the facts right. No, exactly. Naughty, no naughty covers with the lunge line hooked to the wrong place, right? Oh God. <laughs> So. I'm sorry. If I see one more romance cover cowboy with the wrong saddle slung over his shoulder, I'm gonna choke. I hear you, girl. So that's what we're <laughs> that's what we're up to here. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get the facts right. So yeah. Thank you again for the gift of your time. I can't wait to continue following your journey, and I, I love what you're up to. And thank you for sharing such such great information with us today. Well, thank you for having me, Carly. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and writing, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes. And make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle.